Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we interview amazing LDS scholars about Mormon history, doctrine, and culture. Hello, this is Laura Harris-Hills. I'm here today with Daniel Smith as part of our Young Scholars series. Daniel has a master's degree in public administration, but his true passion is the visualization of biblical history. Daniel is the creator of the popular Messages of Christ YouTube channel and blogs at RedeemerofIsrael.org, as well as making videos for Book of Mormon Central and in assisting with the Virtual Scriptures Project. Last year, he gave his first academic speech, and it was quite a debut. He was the keynote speaker at the Temple on Mount Zion conference for the Interpreter Foundation. Today, we're going to talk about the practices in the ancient Israelite tabernacle and how they intersect with current Christian beliefs. Welcome, Daniel. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. As I mentioned in the introduction, you've made a number of videos that you've posted on your YouTube channel called Messages of Christ. One of them is about the ancient tabernacle. Another one shows you making high priest clothing. Why would you decide to make as authentic a replica as you could of what the high priest wore? So I, for many years, have been a Sunday school teacher. And because I'm a visual person, I love to be able to bring in visual content to my classes. Many, many years ago, I started making some of my first replicas. Most of them were pretty small, simple, basic things. And as I started learning about the clothing of the high priest, it just fascinated me, the symbolism as it relates to Jesus Christ and the beauty that it has within the clothing. And so I thought, well, it'd be cool to be able to see what other people have done. And so I started looking online, and I was surprised at how few people had actually replicated it in an authentic way. One of the reasons that it's so difficult is because of the fact that it has to have red, blue, purple, gold, and white all intermixed into one piece of fabric for both the ephod and the breastplate. Well, you don't just go to Joanne's and request high priest fabric for an outfit like this. And so I actually had to come up with a way. I first actually did, if, if you've ever seen a rope walk, where I actually made the thread on this huge long thing where I was spinning on different ends. That took way too long. So I actually created a Lego machine that I have a YouTube video on that, that spins all of the thread together into one single thread which I then loomed. As I put this together, I've been able to use this in many situations where I can teach the youth about the clothing of the high priest. And I have seen the impact that it has. First off, it just clicks. Where when you read it in the text, it just doesn't make sense. It's hard to understand the way, especially the King James Version is written to be able to understand it. But all of a sudden, when you can put it on, and it just makes sense. That's kind of how I got started into it. Why a Lego machine? 
I loved Legos as a kid. That was just about the only toy that my parents bought for me. And so I thought through the whole process of how can I make thread? And that was just the most logical thing because my brain thinks many times in Lego forms. And so it just not only made sense, but you can make a lot of changes to it. So as I was working on it, I made probably... 10 iterations of the machine so that all the gear ratios and everything would be correct. Because you have to get the spinning the correct speed and everything so that the thread perfectly fits together and doesn't fall apart or get too twisted and things like that. So Legos just made sense. It is mesmerizing. It does run like a professional piece of machinery. It's incredible. I have to say that every time I present, especially to kids, they could care less that the high priest outfit took two years. The thing they want to see is the Lego machines. So originally I was going to break it down because I had all the thread. And I've now realized that it's just a permanent part of the experience anytime I teach about it. Why should we care about what went on in the ancient Israelite temple and the clothing of the high priest? I would say first off, and foremost is the focus it has on the Savior and the incredible teachings that come out from the tabernacle and the clothing of the high priest. When you begin to understand the ancient tabernacle, in many ways the scriptures just open up in regards to the atonement, the sacrifice of Jesus, even the way that things happened in relationship to the events of Holy Week, and the Last Supper, and all of these different aspects, they just open up. We worship in modern-day temples, and I wouldn't say that we have a tabernacle experience because it is different, but there's this aspect that there are symbols, a special clothing that we wear, rituals that we go through. And to me, I have found that one of the best ways to be able to learn or one of the ways, there's many ways, but one of the best ways for me to learn about the endowment and about the temple itself is to first understand the tabernacle. And as you understand the tabernacle, a lot of the things in the temple just click and they just make sense. And I've also found it's an incredible resource to be able to use to teach youth and adults where you can talk about the tabernacle and it allows you to be able to give kind of a structure. And for those who have been to the temple, it just clicks. It Oh, okay, I got what you're talking about. I don't even have to teach about the temple. But because I can almost use it as a floor plan or a blueprint for what we do today. I have to tell you, when I was watching your video that was describing the vestments of the high priest, I stopped the video, I went to my closet, <laughs> opened my temple bag, and looked at my temple clothes. <laughs> Let's start with the clothing of the high priest. You mentioned earlier in the interview that each aspect of it can be seen as part of a call to Christ and his atonement and his redeeming power as viewed through Christian eyes. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. 
First off, you have to understand, for those who may not be familiar with the role of the high priest, the high priest is taking the place of Israel. If you remember the whole story about the Israelites building the golden calf, they, they've sinned. God wanted them in their presence, but because they had sinned and they were afraid to even enter his presence after seeing the lightning and thundering on Mount Sion, God said, in essence, okay, I will have somebody that will go in your behalf. The high priest will be the one that represents you. You, you don't want to come into my presence. You have sinned. You can't come in because you're unworthy. And because of that, the high priest will go in your stead. And so the high priest would symbolically every year on the Day of Atonement go through the tabernacle and go all the way back into the Holy of Holies, where he would be symbolically representing this process of returning back to the presence of God. The clothing pointed to this aspect that he is the representative or the one that is representing Israel. So the high priest is wearing these clothing that represent this aspect of symbolically being the representative of Israel. He first has the breastplate. That would be probably one of the first things you would notice. And on the breastplate are 12 stones with the 12 tribes of Israel. There's also two stones on the shoulders, and on each stone are six names of each total of 12 tribes. So the 12 tribes are symbolically carried on the shoulders of the high priest and also against the heart. I remember when I was at one of these tabernacle camps, and I asked the kids what they thought that represented, and I loved what one of the kids said. And this is where I think the, the power of using symbols and visual aids for youth because it clicked for them. And he said, it shows us that Jesus Christ not only cares about us or loves us, so he's again, we are against his heart, but he also carries our weight. And I think a lot of times we think just about the fact that the Lord carries our sins and sure, he loves us, but it's not something that we think about. But to me, it's dual. His atonement is both that he carries our weight, the weight of our sins, the weight of our transgressions, the weight of, of our sorrows, but also loves us. And so this powerful symbolism right off the bat with those two aspects. What was surprising to me is that when I think breastplate, I think the breastplate that Joseph Smith got from Moroni, but that was made out of metal. And this is the fabric that you were talking about that you recreated with your specially twisted yarn. Yes. So it is not a hard breastplate. Correct. It really is a symbolic breastplate, uh, a ritual breastplate, you could say. It is just fabric. And to kind of get an understanding of it, it's, it's actually a double piece of fabric that's folded in half. And in that fold is the Urim and Thummim is stored inside there. What else do we find on the garments of the high priest? The fabric is another really interesting thing, which is why I wanted it to be as authentic as possible. Many of the people that have tried to replicate the fabric as I mentioned before, they just go to Joanne's, buy a piece of fabric that kind of has some colors in it, but it doesn't have all of the colors in it. Well, each of the colors are extremely significant. And you have, for example, you, you first have, you have red, which red can represent mortality or death. You have blue, which represents heaven. 
You have purple, which represents royalty. You have gold, which represents divinity. And you have white, which represents purity. All of these different colors represent attributes of Christ. I find it interesting that as the stones, which are the most expensive part, and trust me, it was the most expensive part to not only purchase, but also the most difficult to find. It took me probably a year and a half just to find a stone cutter that would cut the stones for me. And so the fact that these stones are fastened, the most expensive part to this beautiful fabric that represents the attributes of Christ, to me, again, is another aspect of that symbolism that where are we fastened? We're not perfect because of our works or because of the things that we do. We don't really deserve that location, but that's where Christ wants to place us. He sees our value. He sees us as precious gemstones. And he places us or fastens us to these symbolic attributes of him. And to me, again, this is just my personal interpretation, is that we, through this, this symbolism of the, of the clothing of the high priest, it shows how we can symbolically become one with Christ, fastened to his attributes, and then gaining his perfection and attributes. The high priest didn't walk around quietly in the tabernacle, did he? No, he, he also had bells on the bottom of the hem. There was a blue robe that he also wore underneath the ephod on the breastplate. And these bells would make noise everywhere he went. I love the fact that you visually see the high priest, you hear him. He is stunning in the colors because in ancient times, these colors would not be common. Today, we have all these colors we don't think twice. But in ancient times, these would be expensive, rare colors. So he just stands out in many ways. Especially if you're in the Sinai Desert for 40 <laughs> years. Yes. Yep. Can you briefly describe the layout of the tabernacle and the kind of things that went on in different parts of the building you or bet. structure? Yeah. The first thing that you would come to is the gate. The gate would be this fabric that, interestingly enough, is the same colors as the clothing of the high priest, possibly even the same type of fabric. We don't know for sure. The Bible doesn't give us all the details. So it's red, blue, purple, white, but not the gold. So that's the one color that's missing from the gate and also the veils. And as you go through the gate, you would come into a wide open court that would be 75 feet by 150 feet. And this was basically an outer structure, a white fabric fence that would surround the entire tabernacle. The outside part would be where the altar of sacrifice would be placed and also the laver of water. And obviously this would be where the Israelites would be able to come into this area, but not any further. And so this was the area designed for the sacrifices. You would bring your animal, place your hands on the head of the animal, which transfers your sins symbolically to the animal. And then you kill the animal. And then the priest would burn various parts of the animal as part of the sacrifice. Would they have to be ritually pure to enter this area? Yes. They would do that by bathing in a mikvah before. Correct. After that, we have the priest's area. That was called 
the well, holy you would, place? you'd have the laver, which yes. would technically be part of that priest's area, and that would be where the Levites and priests and high priests could be in that area. It's still part of the outer court. The laver is outside, so we haven't entered the tabernacle as of yet. But the laver is only used for the priests. And it's a ritual washing that they would be doing here. They didn't actually wash the animals or blood or things like that. This was a place where they would be ritually washed and also anointed before being prepared to be clothed and also before entering the temple or the tabernacle. And also even just as simple as before being prepared to be able to officiate in sacrifices. So they would be ritually washed before each of these different aspects to be prepared. And the way, there's there's a couple of different ways, but the main way on a daily basis would be that they would wash their hands and their feet. So their hands representing their actions and their feet, the path that they are taking. Then comes the holy place. Am I correct? Correct. So we would go into the holy place, and as you would go through, you would go into a structure. This structure would be 45 feet long by 15 feet wide and 15 feet tall. Now that would be the full structure. So the actual holy place would be less than that. It would be 30 feet long. But you would go through another gate that would be the same type of fabric as the gate on the outside. And when you go into this, there would be three items. You have the table of showbread, the menorah, and the altar of incense. Is this the same menorah that we see on Hanukkah tables? No. And that's, it's an interesting thing because we call them menorahs, but it actually would be a Hanukkah. A Hanukkah is the lamp stand used for Hanukkah, and a menorah is actually what would be in the temple. So the menorah has seven branches, the Hanukkah has nine branches. The menorah is quite large too, is it not? Yeah, we don't know the exact size. The Bible tells us the weight, but it doesn't tell us the size. So it's believed to be around five to six feet. Could have been smaller, again, depending on how they used that weight, basically. But uh, again, we just know the weight, but not the actual height. But it is still very large. And then there's a place that just the high priest can go on the Day of Atonement, the Holy of Holies. What happens there, Daniel? The Holy of Holies has no light. So to step back one step further, the menorah is the only light in the tabernacle. And because there are, you could say there's two rooms really in the tabernacle, the holy place which is where the priests can go, not Levites, but the priests can go there. And then the high priests can go into the Holy of Holies. Well, the menorah is in the holy place, not the Holy of Holies. So there's no physical light in the Holy of Holies. And the only piece of furniture that is actually in the Holy of Holies is the Ark of the Covenant. And the high priest only could go into this room on one day a year on the Day of Atonement, which is in fall, generally about October-ish time period. But he can go into the Holy of Holies on that day of year. And interestingly enough, when he went in, he only wore white. He didn't wear all of the fancy, what they call the golden vestments. He would only be wearing white. And he would go in and he would have blood in a bowl and some incense There were different rituals, but in essence, he took and he sprinkled the blood on the ark, which interestingly enough, that's where if you understand the word atonement in the original Hebrew, it means to cover, kafar is to cover. 
And so there's this aspect of the Day of Atonement. He's taking blood and covering the ark with blood. And so it's only by the blood of this sacrifice that he is able to enter the Holy of Holies because even he as the high priest, who, yes, he is authorized, but even he is unworthy to enter. So he must enter in by blood. He probably wanted to keep his nice clothes clean. Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) I would imagine. I heard there's a lot of blood in the Day of Atonement. There's a lot of blood, period, (laughs) in all of the rituals. Day of Atonement, there also is a lot of blood, but there would be, he would be, the entire time he would put blood on the horns of the altar of incense, he would sprinkle blood on the veil that... Separated the holy place and the holy of holies. Correct. The veil that separates the holy place from the holy of holies, he would sprinkle blood on that and then on the ark as well. So there would be sprinkling of blood. We talked about the different elements in the tabernacle. What are some of the Christian symbolisms that have been attributed to these different elements? For instance, the gate. You think about it, these colors, again, representing the attributes of Christ. In the Gospel of John, he actually calls himself the gate or the door in some translations. And so we must go through Jesus Christ, the gate, that he is the one that is standing, you could say, almost at each different part. Again, because he's represented in these colors, we must go through him to go into the outer court, We must go through him as we go into the holy place and once again into the Holy of Holies. The menorah. So the menorah was designed to almost look like a tree in a way. It had what the Bible describes as almond blossoms and other type of blossoms and flowers. And the almond tree is very symbolic in that it is the first tree that blossoms in the springtime. And so it can be a symbol of Christ as he is the first fruits of those that rose from the dead. One of the things that I find really beautiful about it is that you would burn olive oil, and it would be the purest and the best olive oil. In fact, it's the first pressing, so to speak, of when you would be making olive oil, that first pressing would be used for the temple. Again, olive oil, the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane, which means olive press in Hebrew, and so you have this, this symbolism that from the, uh, the Garden of Gethsemane or the atonement, the place where part of the atonement took place, light comes forth and it lights our path. It lights everything that we do. It can also represent the Holy Ghost. And so this aspect that as we enter into the holy place, we now receive this light that illuminates our path that allows us to be able to go throughout our day, go throughout our lives and have direction and guidance. Obviously, if I were to approach a rabbi and ask him, so tell me what the symbolism of the tabernacle is, it would be a little bit different than what we've been talking about today. The New Testament authors, when they preached, they put new meanings onto the Old Testament scriptures. In Hebrews 10, 19, it says, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. 
Talk to me a little bit about the relationship between the veil, the high priest, and flesh of Jesus Christ as articulated by these early Christian teachers. Yeah, so one of the things that I love about the clothing of the high priest is the relationship that it appears to have to the veil and also to Jesus Christ. And it it seems to tie all of these different aspects together. So first off, again, the fabric of the veil that separates the Holy of Holies from the holy place is these same colors, red, purple, blue, and white, not the gold. You have these attributes, again, representing these attributes of Christ. The writer of the book of Hebrews, when he is teaching, he talks about how the veil represents the flesh of Christ and that we must go through the veil, obviously, to be able to go into the Holy of Holies. He's saying that we must go through the flesh that's represented by it. So you think about it that if the high priest is wearing, in essence, the same fabric or very similar, minus the gold, of the veil, it's almost as if the high priest is kind of standing there at the veil and we must go through him. And then if you think about in the aspect of the sacrament, Each Sabbath, we partake of bread that is torn. And think about what happens to the veil at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. It is rent in twain from top to bottom. When Christ was being crucified, or or in particular when he was whipped and scourged, the whip would actually tear pieces of flesh from his body. His flesh is being torn apart. And so the symbolism that we must go through the torn flesh of Christ or the torn veil to be able to enter into the Holy of Holies. And so not only is the high priest representing Jesus Christ, who is the great high priest, who enters into the Holy of Holies and is symbolically carrying all Israel with him, taking us back to God. He's also the very blood that is brought in to be allowed to come in. And he's also the veil that separates us. We must go through all. So he's in every aspect. He is the high priest. He is the veil. And he is the blood of the sacrifice. All of those things are intricate parts of the Day of Atonement on which separates us from entering back into the presence of God. We've teased a bit about these tabernacle camps. Can you tell us a little bit about the tabernacle camps, how they were started, and how you got involved? I got involved with the tabernacle camps originally because I was working on the clothing of the high priest. A stake in Idaho had been building a full-scale replica of the tabernacle of Moses And they had contacted a professor, Don Perry, at BYU and had been asking him for advice on the layout, materials, colors, all those type of things. And he had been helping out quite extensively with the classes. And I had contacted Brother Perry separately to ask him some questions about the the Hebrew that is written on the, the crown of the high priest, which says holiness to the Lord. And I wanted to make sure that I got the Hebrew right. So I emailed him. And I had emailed other professors, but Brother Perry was the first to respond. And it was within about 24 hours, and he had CC'd me the email with another guy who I had no idea who was. His name was Jason Cotter. It all kind of snowballed from there. Jason called me, and he 
and was kind of teasing, so to speak, in the aspect that he said, okay, we have this really cool project and he didn't invite me directly. And at the end of the conversation, I said, do you want me to come to your tabernacle camp? And he said, yes, we would love it. (laughs) And I, of course, was thrilled to come. And they taught the young men about the ancient Aaronic priesthood and how it related to today. That was the first tabernacle camp. And since then, there has been the California one that was last year. And that was two stakes. They've also had one in Florida. They had another additional one, I think it was about eight months ago or six months ago in California again, another one. And they've also had a Michigan open house, which I just got back from a couple of weeks ago with the tabernacle. And those were open to all genders, correct? Correct. You have a funny story related to some of the difficulties in recreating a genuine Israelite tabernacle. One of them involves getting an appropriate sized menorah. You want to share that story? Uh, So in Idaho, when they were trying to figure out all these different details, he had seen that I obviously have interest in the tabernacle and the clothing of the high priest. And Jason asked me, he said, so where can we buy a menorah? And I said, well, you're not going to find a menorah that's a five-foot menorah because he wanted a tall menorah. He's like, well, there's got to be some online. And I said, no, you're not going to find one. And so he actually said, well, what would we do? And I said, well, I can build it for you if you want. So I went home to my dad and my dad had a friend who helped me build it. And we built a menorah for the Idaho stake. And he also has a video of the process of doing that as well. Not an easy undertaking for sure. Daniel, you are involved in an exciting project of building a full-size tabernacle at BYU. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes, so it will be the same tabernacle that is in California. It actually was transported to Michigan and then on its way back is being left here at BYU. So it'll be the same one that that are in my videos and that was at the camp. I'm not actually a part in the aspect of setting up or running the event. I'll probably help out with a few tours, but I my clothing will most likely be there. It will be open to the public, but it is mostly geared towards the students. And what they've done is they have opened it up for teachers and professors and classes that you can actually bring your class into the tabernacle and learn about the tabernacle first hand right there. And I have to say, it is an incredible experience. It's one of the reasons I love going to these events. You just can't compare it to be able to stand there and not just talk about the tabernacle, but actually physically see it and see the size. And so that's what they'll have the opportunity, these students at BYU. When will the wonderful Daniel Smith video of the BYU tabernacle be available? I have several videos that I hope to be working on the next two months that will be released, hopefully in coordination with the event. And depending on how much time I have, because I do this volunteer, I should hopefully have quite a few videos that will talk about either each of the different pieces of the furniture or the tabernacle as a whole. I do have one video right now that's almost ready that talks about the full tabernacle. 
Thank you, Daniel. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. And I'm excited to see what pops up next on Messages of Christ on YouTube. Thank you for having me. Be sure to check out ldsperspectives.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, download transcripts, and find show notes. LDS Perspectives podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed represent the views of the guests or the podcasters alone. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, policies, or practices.